University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. I've always wanted the introduction music for, for a sermon, so we just made it happen week after week. Take a look at the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, have you ever had one of those moments where you're trying to recall something and you feel like it just happened recently and then you realize it happened a long time ago? I just capped off watching the original Indiana Jones trilogy with my children, and Madison asked when Raiders, of, uh, excuse me, when The Last Crusade came out, and I thought to myself, oh my goodness, that was 1989. 1989 was a good year for movies. You had Batman, Back to the Future 2, My Left Foot, Field of Dreams, Honey Blew Up the Kids, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Turner and Hooch, Ghostbusters 2, Weekend at Bernie's Glory, and Dead Poet Society, and we're just getting warmed up. All wonderful movies, all stories of underdogs. Take, for example, the brilliant Dead Poet Society. On the first day of class, they are surprised by this unorthodox teaching methods of their new English teacher, uh, John Keating played, um, and who encourages his students to, to make their lives extraordinary. And it's a sentiment summarized in that Latin phrase, carpe diem. Except the boys aren't allowed to live extraordinary because their parents want to control and shape their future. They want them to become doctors and lawyers and bankers. No offense to our doctors, lawyers, and bankers in the room. But they wanted to be poets. And yet Keaton stirs the boys to find their own way, saying, you don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race, and the human race filled with passion. In medicine and law and business and engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what make us alive. There is a time to be daring and there is a time for caution. A wise man understand which is for. This leads to his firing in that beautiful scene, O captain, my captain. This might be the best theme to help us lift into our context of our scripture this morning. There is a time to be daring and a time for caution. For this, we look at our text. Now, we've been working through the book of Nehemiah. We learned that Nehemiah is this lowly cupbearer to the king. When he hears this devastating news, he is faced with mourning and prayer. He's faced with indifference. And yet the time has come to act. We pick up here in chapter 2. In the month of Nisan and the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, and the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This cannot be nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very afraid. So after months of mourning and prayer, Nehemiah is a, 
going about business as usual, serving the king his drinks when the king notices the sour look on Nehemiah's face. Now, some biblical scholars have argued this was very intentional on Nehemiah's behalf, but to do anything but have a pleasant look before the king could have ended up with his hands being slapped, him being beaten, or, you know, getting your head lopped off. And yet here is Nehemiah in the presence of the most powerful man on earth at this time, an insignificant cupbearer. And his altered mood is noted. As if it wasn't obvious, the narrator had to caption Nehemiah's, capture Nehemiah's emotions by saying, and I was very afraid. Here's an insignificant man with the most powerful person on earth, giving him his undivided attention. And I'm sure Nehemiah felt smaller now than he had seconds before. Have you ever been here? That feeling of insignificance. Insignificance is the feeling of being small and inconsequential, not having anything that seems to be going your way. For many people, the feeling of insignificance comes from money. 86% of Americans say they stress about their finances. For some of us, it's the feeling of insignificance around our work. We stress about our work. We stress about what it puts on us, about our, our bosses, the difference it makes. 75% of Americans say they stress about their work. And there's the stress and insignificant that comes with relationships, whether a marriage or a friendship or parenting relationships. Am I enough? Am I adequate? Do I have time for this? Will it make a difference? And if you throw on to all these things, the insignificance that comes with health concerns and family responsibility and job stability and personal safety, then you have this toxic cocktail of insignificance that boils up within our life. And beyond the tangible things we can identify like work and relationship and health, there are so much more things going on underneath the surface of our soul and our mind. Have you ever battled with insignificance of your worth, of your story, of your skills, of your passions, of your strengths? The great Carl Sagan put it this way, who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. We, like Nehemiah, cannot even begin to imagine doing something significant for God when we feel so much insignificance in our lives and around us. It's not always in the grand ways that we feel that we can't do something for God, but sometimes we feel like we just can't say yes to anything because we don't know of our own worth. No, I can't make a difference in another person's life. No, I don't have time to serve because my own life is filled up with busyness and stress. No, I can't help make a difference when I can't even keep my life together. No, this stress and this burden and these things are overwhelming me. And like Nehemiah, we all too often don't feel like we can make a difference. We don't feel like we can ask for help or help tackle a task that is before us. But what if that's not the answer that God desires from us? What if God does not desire for us to come up with all sorts of no's and all sorts of excuses? What if God does not desire for us to wallow in a sense of insignificance? Our family has a friend that has the most irrational fear I've ever heard of. Um, let me try to say this without laughing. She is afraid of sharks and swimming pools. <laughs> now that's right. She will not go into a pool by herself because she believes 
that sharks are lurking in the chlorine. And I couldn't contain my laughter when she told me this. And so while she's telling me about this irrational fear, I start Googling it. And that's when I had to eat crow because there has been multiple instances over the last couple of years of people putting sharks in pools. Take, for example, last year in Florida, a five-foot black-tipped shark was found in a swimming condo uh, outside of South Florida. Now, I stand corrected. <laughs> but she now can have a legitimate fear. Anyone else going to think twice about jumping into the deep end next summer? At the root of our feelings of insignificance and the hurting and brokenness of our world is fear. The author wants to make it abundantly clear that Nehemiah is in a place of fear. And I wonder how often many of us are, are consumed by fear. Fear is an oppression within our hearts that causes us to believe that we have no sense of control, that we have no sense of answers. This is what the disciples faced when they were in the boat and they were afraid it was going to capsize. They were filled with fear. When we have no sense of control, we feel that we are consumed by it. The circumstances of our life seize us within fear. What do you fear? Did any of these ring a bell? Some of us have a feeling of failure. We don't want to let other people down or ourselves down. The fear of the unknown, we don't know what we can't see and what we can't control. Fear of our present circumstances. Do our, our present state of living and working and functioning drive torment within our heart? A fear of inability to change, that we have no sense of that this is going to change tomorrow. There's the fear of finding direction. Every turn you make seems to be the wrong turn. There's the fear of never finding love and companionship. There's the fear of people, of people of our past and people of our present. There's the fear of belonging and that if I try to make a difference, if I step out and say something, Thing, that I will not be welcomed back into a community. There's a fear of finding your identity. There's a fear of inadequacy. And all of these things consume our lives. Are we afraid? And for many of us, we're afraid of God. We're afraid of God's power and God's judgment. We're afraid of trusting God because we seem so small and insignificant to a cosmic God. And you see, I believe we all fear something. Something or someone grips our hearts and moves us to a place of immovability. And no matter what we fear, it has an effect on our life. The, the worry and the anxiety and the apprehension and the uncertainty and doubt and paranoia, they pop up within our lives. And when fear dominates us, keeping us from making choices, when it makes us always second-guess ourselves, when it replaces our faith in God and even our faith in other people, we come to a place of unhealthy spirituality to which it cripples us from moving and making a difference. The problem with fear is that it often distorts reality and warps our perspective. It also distracts us from the individuality and creativity that's within us to make a difference in this world. Fear affects us. Now, have you ever considered that Jesus has authority over our fears? The scripture says that, that Jesus has authority over sickness and death and demons and sin, so why not fear? In fact, scriptures declare that Jesus calls us to cast our anxieties and worries upon him. Jesus invites us by saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and I will give rest to your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
The psalmist declares, you answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the furthest seas, whom you have formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who still soar the seas and roar their waves in the turmoil of the nations. Jesus has authority over our fears. Jesus has authority over our indifference and our feelings of insignificance within our life because Jesus is present with us in our fears. God is present with us. Too often we subscribe to that prosperity gospel that tells us that everything should be perfect in our life, and if it's not, then we're doing something against God. Jesus never promised us a perfect life, but Jesus promised us that he is present with us in our fears present with us as we struggle through and face all the turmoil within us. Across all the anxieties, all the sense of abandonment you have in your life, God is present with you. The woman struggling through breast cancer, God is there. The man who lost his job and is scared to death of letting his family down, God is there. Those that have this blunt end of society's disregard for their humanity because of their ethnicity or sexuality, God is there. The family suffering in poverty here in Baton Rouge, God is there. The woman seeking equality, rights in a patriarchal society, God is there. The church facing uncertainty of the drastic shifts of the landscape of how the church relates to the culture and culture relates to the church, God is there. People who are taking note of the injustices happening in our world, in our country, in our city, and don't know what to do, God is there. God is present. And we see this Here, picking back up in verse 3, it says, But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. The magnitude of this moment is is huge. Nehemiah is moved from mourning and contemplation, from contemplation to action, faced with the fear that the king could respond with, off with his head, Nehemiah confesses what comes from the very depths of his soul. And when the king responds to his question with a question, Nehemiah turns to what he knows best. He turns to prayer. Please don't miss this. It wasn't a a prayer uh, of after the fact that Nehemiah turned to. Right there, in the moment of being asked this question, Nehemiah turns to God. I'm reminded of Jesus' clever and empowering words from the gospel in which it reads, reads, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For whoever asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit who asks of you? Jesus has a good sense of humor. Jesus said, God gives us the gift of the Spirit. The word translated here is pneuma. It means a a powerful wind. God is present with us. And God is not just sitting there waiting for us to just throw up these haphazard prayers. God says, ask, seek, and knock. Ask God with confidence exactly what you need because God's nature is to give to us extravagantly. 
for our daily bread, for the strength to live in the way of Jesus, for the wisdom and resources to further the kingdom, for the ability to fight injustice in our world, God says, ask, seek, and knock. And Nehemiah prays, and this is what happens in verse 5. And I answer the king, and if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have a letter to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, so that it will provide me the safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeping the royal park, so he will give me the timber to make the beams for the gates for the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted me my request. Nehemiah puts his life on the line. And he spoke what God put on his heart. Nehemiah began with this concrete plan to return to Jerusalem to supply uh, to rebuild the wall and to give aid to the people. And we have to note the detailed plan was a result of months of contemplation and discernment. Nehemiah was stuck in mourning and maybe stuck in the magnitude of the fear of how he can make a difference in the world, but in prayer, Nehemiah was moved from insignificance and indifference and into action. And the king gave Nehemiah all that he needed. The volunteers, the supplies, the financial backing, more importantly, the Persian army garrison to protect them along the road. What faith a cupbearer had is quite astonishing. The scriptures bolster into view that God took Nehemiah's fear of insignificance and turned it into something remarkable. Do you believe that God views you as significant? We imagine an all-powerful God, the cosmic God of the universe, but the Bible describes God also as a God who knows every hair on our head, a God who loves us and knew us before we were even formed in the womb. That is God's identity. God is described within Scripture as a God of love. God's love is an overflowing river. It is abounding within our lives. God desires to create and give life and to fill us with love that we might go forth and pour this into the world. And God provides this through Christ. As one author put it, it doesn't matter what someone said to you or how someone treated you, whether you feel like a success or failure, healthy or sick, rich or poor. However you happen to feel at this moment, it is always true that God loves you. God reminds us of just how significant we are because God makes us significant. God takes our fears of the present and uncertainty of tomorrow, the overwhelming emotions of insignificance, and transform them into something remarkable. Another brilliant movie that was released in 1989 is the film Glory, which tells of the Union Army conscripting African-American men. And the men were treated awful by their fellow soldiers. They were mocked, they were spat upon, they were beaten, mistreated. And the men are trained and supplied for war, but not allowed to fight. They are given the menial task of packing up the camp, of cooking, of cleaning up after a battle, but they were not allowed to fight. 
And the Confederate soldiers, the Confederate army makes a declaration that all black soldiers captured during battle will be returned to slavery. Black soldiers found in uniforms will be executed along with their white officers. And the men fight hard to have a chance to make a difference in this horrific war. They could not stand idly by as others fought and died for this dream of emancipation. They are given a chance to fight for those who laid down their lives for the freedom and for the freedom of those who would come after them. They did something powerful because they chose to make a difference right then and there. I want you to stop and imagine what God can do through you. Allowing God to take that fear of insignificance within each of our individual lives and remove that, imagine what God can do through you. Not someone else, you. Imagine what God can do through you. Imagine how God can take your unique giftedness and strengths and resources and bring a radical change of justice in our community and in this world. Imagine, just like Nehemiah did, of what one person can do to transform the world. Are you willing to say yes? Are you willing to genuinely follow Jesus into this new way of thinking and living? Are you willing to ask, seek, and knock on the Spirit of God who has called you and equipped you to do all that you can for this moment and this time right now? But I think the story of Nehemiah can also teach us what brilliant things we can do together. God wants to do brilliant things through us. But are we willing to say yes? Are we willing to risk together for the sake of the world? You must decide for yourself whether or not you will be a part of this. Are there limitations to your faith? Are there tasks that you're not willing to do for God? Are there people that you're not willing to serve? Are there unpredictable odds that you're not willing to face? Are you willing to do for God what God asks of you? Are you willing to say yes to God? Are you willing to imagine what God can do through you? Are you willing to imagine what God can do through us? On the week that we recognize and celebrate the life of a great saint, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I find it fitting to wrap up this conversation with his powerful words. The ultimate measure of a man or woman is not where he stands in the moment of comfort and convenience, but where he or she stands at times of challenge.